0: I think it was back in October that we had the men's retreat that was here uh, in the church. wasn't really a retreat it was so much an evening and then Saturday morning. But I started off with kind of a trick question that I'm going to pose to y'all this morning, and I'm giving you a little bit of advance notice that I didn't give the men, but I started off and I said, "How we doing?" And the guys kind of looked at me, and you know, a couple of them nodded their heads. A couple of guys said, you know, what's the, what's the typical response when you ask somebody, how you doing? Fine. I'm fine. Fine. So I want to ask y'all, how are we doing? Good, great. great. See, I told you, I warned you that I was setting you up and y'all still answered, but that's okay. See, the question isn't about how am I doing, not talking about how are you doing personally, emotionally, physically financially I'm not asking about that i'm asking about the ministry of the church and that kind of changes things a little bit see it's amazing to me the things that we invite into our lives the things that we actually have to be conscious of and invite into our lives and then the next thing we knew, know like an addict that they've consumed us drama The drama that we invite into our lives and we look at high school girls and we say, well, that's really where drama is. And then our kids look at us and they're sitting there going, mom and dad are involved in so much drama. Maybe we were ignored. Maybe it was even at church. A perceived slight, an offense when we really didn't even know everything that was going on behind the scenes. And yet we harbor a grudge. And we hang on to it. And then with venom, we look at everyone with our eyes. And we assume that everybody's out to get us. And we stop being a part of the ministry of the church. When we do participate in ministry of the church, oftentimes we bring our garbage, our baggage along with us. I'm telling you, I'm getting to anticipating Messiah, but I'm going to lay some foundational work. Because I really wonder... I really wonder, how are we doing? How are we doing? I'm going to ask you, I told you to turn to, or have Matthew 11 earmarked, and I'm going to ask you to turn somewhere else a few chapters after that. Matthew 16. Scholars sometimes say that this is the the pivotal chapter, the, the pivotal verse in Matthew it's talking about Peter's confession of Messiah. 16.13 says, When Jesus came to the of region of Caesarea Philippi, that's in the Gentile area, far to the north, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the disciples responded, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But you... Jesus asked in verse 15, he asked them, Who do you, my disciples, who do you say I am? Simon Peter, you got to love Peter. Oftentimes he just ran his mouth without engaging his brain. Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Who do you say I am? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you, you are Peter. And on this rock, not referring to Peter, but his confession, on this rock, I will build my church. Pay attention because here's where we're going. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. So I want to ask us again. How are we doing? If the ministry of the church manifests itself in a lot of different ways but ultimately it's us, the church, the bride and body of Christ taking it to the gates of hell The prison where people who are captives, who are lost in sin, blind, deaf, lame, starving for the gospel. And see, all of the ministries that we engage in, they all have one thing in common taking it to the gates of hell and setting captives free. And if we're not doing that, guess what, folks? We aren't doing anything. We can put on a women's dinner. Great. Did we reach anyone? It's wonderful. I'm not knocking the fact that we had one. I think it's wonderful. Because my wife told me that some of the ladies from the church invited friends and neighbors and that they were here. Maybe they've never heard the gospel before. Guess what, everyone? It wasn't about a dinner. And if it was, then you completely missed the point. Some of the folks in the church have asked me, they said, why did we spend $10,000 on a playground? It's kind of like when Judas said to Jesus, you know, why is it that we're, we're that woman that she had that perfume and she broke it and she poured it all over you? That money could have been used to feed the poor. And the reality is Judas didn't care less. See, the fact was, is that Judas, it tells us in Scripture, is that he's the one who was in charge of the money bag. And he wanted to make sure that that money went into his purse. And wherever he needed a little something-something, as a treasurer, he'd just help himself. He didn't care about the poor. And I wonder, do you really think that we're building a playground because we, we need a place for children to play? We're not. It's because it's a venue and it's a platform so that people can bring their families here and hear the gospel preached. I don't know if you know this or not, but most of Paul's epistles were written to churches. Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, etc. And do you all know what they were written for? People say, well, he wanted to explain doctrine. Well, he did that. He wanted to refute heresies. Yeah, well, he did that. But the reality is is that Paul wanted to take the fight to the gates of hell because Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And I just wonder, I'm going back to the question that I started with, how are we doing? Are we so consumed and wrapped up in our stuff, in the thoughts of our minds, in our personal problems, I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy Dave Ramsey's new book so I can be financially free. Well, good for you. Then what are you going to do with it? Well, now I can afford the next level up in the car that I buy next time so that we can move into a bigger house, so that we can go on longer vacations. Do you really think that that's what God intends for you to do? I'm not saying there's anything against having a nice vehicle or anything against going on vacation, but if that's your first thought, financial freedom so that I can take care of me, then you've missed it. Maybe you're thinking that I want to buy Dave Ramsey's book so I can be financially free so that I can get out from under all of the oppression of debt and I can take the fight right to the gates of hell. And if that's your thought, amen. And if it's not, I don't know. I don't know. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5, I love this, I love this chapter, and I love the ending, because Paul makes it, one time I preached something, or I taught something, and someone in the congregation said, you know what, I love it when you just make things simple. When you just make it super simple, and you give me that golden nugget that I can walk away with, then I feel like I can handle that. I've got one thing, one responsibility to preach the gospel, and in Galatians chapter 5, in verse 13, Paul's writing to the church in the galactic region in Galatia, and he says, for you, the people in the church in the area of that galactic region, for you are called to freedom, brothers, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Tune in, Listen. Don't use it as freedom and opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. Did y'all hear that? Serve one another through love for the entire law, if you want it simple, and I do, the entire law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor. He doesn't say worry about your problems. He doesn't say try to get out of financial debt. He doesn't say bring your garbage and your baggage to church. He doesn't say to be divisive. As a matter of fact, he goes on and he says, you know what, in fact, see there's this conflict, there's this huge contrast between the works of the flesh and the works of the spirit. And they don't go along with one another. You're either in one or you're in the other. And he says now the works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity. We say, well, I don't do that, I don't do that. Idolatry, I don't have a big pole a in my backyard, I don't have to worry about that. Sorcery? Nope, haven't even read any Harry Potter books, so I'm not doing that. What about hatred? What about strife and malice and jealousy? What about those things? What about outbursts of anger? Selfish ambition? Here's the beauty of this. Dissensions and factions. You know how many churches have split? over ridiculous things. People have got their feelings, their, their little sensibilities hurt because something happened that they didn't have a vote on. Envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. And he goes on to say that those who practice such things, those who practice, like an Olympic athlete training, is that you gotta go out of your way and you gotta practice those things. You wake up in the morning, I'm gonna hold on to that grudge. I'm going to be angry at that person. You have to make a conscious mental effort to be angry, to be spiteful, to be divisive. When someone comes to you with a word of gossip, instead of rebuking them and correcting them, we buy into it. and We say, you know what? Yeah, you're right. I can't believe that happened. I got my feelings hurt. Serve one another through love. I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Revelation. I promise we're getting to Matthew 11, we're going to get there, but I'm laying some foundation here. I asked a question to begin, how are we doing? See, there's a lot of churches that think they're doing a great job. And Jesus came along in the book of Revelation, and he provided a little bit of course correction. Chapter 2 says the, the letter at Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Ephesus in 2.1, write... The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven gold lampstands says, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. Sounds pretty good, right? You have tested those who call themselves apostles, and they're not. Sounds pretty good, right? And you have found them to be liars. Sounds pretty good, right? You also possess endurance. Sounds pretty good, right? You tolerated many things because of my name. You've not grown weary. But, y'all ready? Sounds like Jesus is pumping them up and then he gives them a little dose of reality. But I have this one thing against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. then he goes on to the church at Smyrna. Says to the angel of the church in Smyrna. He doesn't really have a rebuke for them, but he says, uh, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Endure to the church in Pergamum in verse 12. It says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? The one who has sharp two-edged sword says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, and you're holding on to my name. Sounds pretty good. You did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, times of persecution. Fast forward to verse 14. But... See, when Jesus says, but you better tremble, you better listen, but I have a few things against you. You have some who would hold to the teaching of Balaam, that Old Testament guy, the one who hired himself out as a prophet to the person or the nation who was willing to pay him the most. He was a mercenary, he was a mercenary prophet for hire. Verse 18, it says, to the church in Thyatira, to the angel of the church in Thyatira wrote, the son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame, whose feet are like fine bronze, says, I know your works, your love, your faithfulness, service, endurance. Your last works are greater than the first, but, there it is, I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. See, you're doing a lot of good stuff. You've got some really incredible programs going on at your church, but... See, you've either got it all squared away, you're either taking the fight to the gates of hell, or you're not doing anything. You're not. But I've got this against you. See, you've got this woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and you tolerate it. And you tolerate her teaching. And she deceives many to commit sexual immorality. Beginning of chapter 3, it says, To the angel of the church at Sardis writes, the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. See, on the outside, the externals, you got a really cool building project that you just finished. Everything looks great. You got some neon signs, you got a full band and a choir. You're just rocking it. But the reality is, is that deep inside, when you scratch away all that stuff, is you're dead. letter at Philadelphia in verse 7, 3-7. It says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? And then he goes on. And he really doesn't have a rebuke against them either. Verse 13, he says, I'm coming quickly. Hold on. Persevere, endure to what you have so that no one takes your crown. See, there's an active responsibility that we have as members of the church. It doesn't say just kick back and wait for Jesus to return. It says we're supposed to be involved We're supposed to be eagerly anticipating. And then the last one to the letter, the church at Laodicea, one of my favorites. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation says, I know your works, church, that you're neither hot or cold. I wish you were cold or hot, one or the other. So because you were lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I'm rich, I become wealthy. I need nothing. You don't know that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. See, we convince ourselves that we're okay. How you doing? Fine. Good. Great. Awesome. And then Jesus comes along and he provides a rebuke. And then we get offended and we say, you know what, I'm gonna pack up shop and I'm gonna go down there to that other church where the pastor doesn't talk to me like that. How we doing, church? I want you to turn now to Matthew chapter eleven. You can kind of keep it there. If you're somebody who likes turning pages, then you can kind of follow along with me or you can just listen. I'm going to set the table here. Holding on to all of that that we just talked about. Anticipating Messiah. I'm actually going to start off with a couple of other areas and then we're going to come back to Matthew 11. And Matthew... Chapter 3, 1 through 7, I'm going to read it for you. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, turn from your sin, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. John himself had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then people from Jerusalem, all Judea, and the vicinity of the Jordan were flocking to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River and confessed their sins. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to the place of his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? I don't know if you've ever done a study of this or asked, why does he call them a brood of vipers? Does anybody know? What's a brood of vipers? Yeah, it's the offspring. It's what you would call like when a mama snake gives birth to her little baby snakes and she has her little, you know, brood of vipers. So when you go back to Genesis 3, John read it for us Wednesday night, as God is cursing the serpent, and he says to the serpent, there will be enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring, serpent, brood of vipers, and hers. So when John the Baptist calls the religious leaders of the day a brood of vipers, there's nothing that could have been more offensive to them. He's identifying them with the enemy. You brood of vipers, who warned you? I want you, if you want to turn, you can just listen or you can turn there. John chapter 1. I'm just laying the foundation here, getting you ready. I'm going to tell you the story about John the Baptist and how we got to where we are today. John chapter 1. This is John's testimony. When the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? He didn't refuse to answer, but he declared, I'm not Messiah. What then, they asked him. Are you Elijah? I'm not, he said. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Who are you then, they asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? And he says the exact same that's recorded that we just read. I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the path of the Lord, anticipating him just as Isaiah the prophet said. And John goes on to say, I baptize with water in verse 26. Someone stands among you who you don't know. He is the one coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. And then John goes on to say numerous times in the next few verses in 29, here is the Lamb of God. Verse 34, I have seen and testified that he... Jesus, the Messiah, is the Son of God. Then again in 36, he says, When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, behold the Lamb of God. Sounds pretty confident, doesn't he? He's taking care of business baptizing, and then he sees Jesus, and his immediate response is, Even before this, when he was still in his mother's womb, he knew who Jesus was. He leapt. And he sees him there that day, and he calls out, and he points out over and over again, that is the Son of God. That is the Lamb of God. Mark chapter 6. Just want to paint a picture for you. We're going somewhere with this. Mark chapter 6, verse 17. Herod himself had given order to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. So Herod had married his brother's wife. Doesn't say that his brother was dead. It just says that he married his brother's wife. John, John the Baptist, had been telling Herod, it's not lawful for you to marry your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she could not because Herod was in awe of John and he was protecting him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very disturbed, yet he would hear him gladly. All right. Now having laid that foundation, I think we're ready. Matthew 11. Matthew 11, 1 through 6. When Jesus had finished giving orders to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in other towns. When John, that's John the Baptist, heard in prison, which we just read about, what, when he heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent a message by his disciples and asked him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied to John's disciples, go and report to John what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, those with skin diseases are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And if anyone is not offended because of me, he is blessed. We're gonna look at verses two and three here first. And if you're taking notes, you can write down Anticipating Messiah shatters our expectations. Anticipating Messiah shatters our expectations. I don't know if you all caught that or not, but Jesus is on the scene, right? Jesus is engaged in ministry. And what's John the Baptist doing? He's in prison. I always ask myself, I was like, why didn't John, why wasn't John the Baptist one of Jesus' disciples? Why didn't he stop doing the ministry that was anticipating preparing for Christ, now that Christ is there, instead of just saying, there he is, and go and follow? John still had disciples of his own, why? Why would you have disciples following you when Messiah is here? Your ministry was to anticipate the arrival of Messiah. He's come. Now you should abandon everything that you have in life. See, people were flocking to John. And it's not in Scripture. And so I'm making a little asterisk here, a little footnote. I'm wondering if maybe John was still holding on to a little bit of that. I was a rock star. People were flocking from everywhere to come and see me. I had my own disciples. And I stood there and I pointed out, behold the Lamb of God. But see, now I'm sitting in prison. I'm sitting in prison. And Jesus hasn't come to break me out. And I'm in prison. In fact, the reason wasn't for preaching the gospel. Why is John in prison? Because he's the morality police. Is that your ministry? Is that our ministry? Is that the ministry of anticipating Messiah? Is that we go around and we point the finger at people? Tanya, you shouldn't be doing that, bud. You shouldn't be doing that. Deborah, ha, ha, I caught you. Lana, I see you back there. Robert, hey, watching you. That's not my job. That's not our job. What did we start off saying? The ministry of the church is to take the fight to the gates of hell. To set the captives free. To make the blind see and the deaf hear. The lame walk. To hear the gospel. It's not to be morality police. And we as Baptists are notorious. We are notorious. I'll say it one more time. We are notorious for being morality police. There are so many churches across America and across the world that have dropped Baptists from their name because Baptist has a stigma. Oh, those are those people. They're the judgmental ones. They, oh, you dance? Oh, you can't be a Baptist if you dance. You go to the movies? Oh, morality police. John is in prison for playing morality police instead of anticipating Messiah. See, Jesus didn't come to make us relevant. He came so that we would make him known. He died on the cross, not so that we would be relevant, but so that we could be members of his church and that we would take the fight to the gates of hell. See, John's personal mission seems like it's been derailed. And then he asks a question, are you the one? Because I'm in doubt. See, I was certain back on the day of your baptism, and I heard the Father making a testimony about you being the Son, but I've forgotten that. See, because now I'm wrapped up in my personal stuff, my stuff, my circumstances, and I've forgotten the mission of God. Anticipating Messiah shatters our expectations. Let's look at verse 4 and 5. How does Jesus respond? Jesus replied to them to this question. He doesn't just give a simple yes or no. He says, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, those with skin diseases are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. See, I, I, I assume, I'm pretty confident in my assumption that John the Baptist knew his Hebrew scripture. I'm pretty confident in that. So I think that when Jesus said that, that John the Baptist was maybe thinking about something like Isaiah 35. Where in Isaiah 35 it says in verse 4, "Here is your God, vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like deer. The tongue of the mute will sing for joy." Water will gush in the wilderness, streams in the desert. The parched ground will become a pool of water, and the thirsty land springs of water. How did Jesus respond? He responded with scripture that I know that John the Baptist would have known. Or maybe he was referring to Isaiah 42. This is my servant. I strengthen him. My chosen one, I delight in him. I put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. And then in 42, verse 6, it says, I, the Lord, have called you for a righteous purpose, and I will hold you by your hand. I will keep you. I will make you a covenant for the people, a light to the nations in order to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners. See, prisoners are locked in behind gates from the dungeon and those sitting in darkness in the prison house. How we doing? How we doing? What's the ministry of the church, folks? See, it takes on a lot of different facets, a lot of different venues. But ultimately, it's that we take the fight to the gates of hell. And Jesus said, the gates of hell would not overcome it. And I just wonder, see, if Jesus said it, it's true, right? If Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, then I wonder, if we're not doing that, are we really the church? That's a tough question, right? I'm asking, Are we the church or aren't we? Because if we're not taking the fight straight to the gates of hell and prevailing against it, what are we doing? Are we involved in that? Are you the one who is to come? So your second one on your notes there, it should say, Confirms the gospel. Anticipating Messiah confirms the gospel. It fulfills all scripture. And if we're not aligned with that, I just wonder what we're doing. Matthew eleven six, Jesus says, and if anyone is not offended because of me, he is blessed. I think I could have filled up an entire sermon just on this one verse. I think if I were to ask you, are you offended by the gospel? I think our knee jerk response would be, I'm not offended. I'm not offended. See, if you ask Paul, the one who was formerly Saul, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But see, then he did something, right? He went on mission trips. He took it as far as he could possibly go. He was thrown in prison. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. Are you offended? I'm going to ask a couple of questions. You don't have to answer out loud. I prefer that you don't. When's the last time you shared the gospel? Maybe at work. Maybe with a neighbor. Maybe it was at Walmart you saw somebody whose car wouldn't start and you had some jumper cables ready to go because you knew someday God's going to give me an opportunity and I'm going to be ready for it. And it's not about jump-starting this person's car. It's not just about being kind like we think of the Good Samaritan. It's about creating opportunities to share the gospel. When's the last time you invited someone to church? Mike Jaffe's not here today, but I thank God that Mike has become a part of our fellowship and I look at him, his wife Sue is here today and I think over the last month they've invited more people than the rest of us combined. Is It that one day when that young boy died in a car accident over at the school and I went up there and I introduced myself to Mike and I invited him. I said, hey man, I'd love for you to come. And he said, you know, I kind of had a bad experience with your church. And I said, well, I'm really sorry to hear that he said, yeah, we went up there and uh, when you guys were doing your garage sale, and he said, there wasn't a single person that even said hi to me. Not a single person. he said, I looked out and I saw all these light blue shirts and they were kind of in their little clumps together. And I wonder if that's changed. I wonder as I stand up here and I say, Mike Jaffe, how many of you say, well, I don't even know who that is. Why don't you? Why don't you know who Mike is? Why don't you have Mike's phone number? You're not offended by the gospel, really? You're not offended by Christ? When's the last time you had a gospel-centered conversation? Are you walking with Jesus as a disciple, or are you the morality police? There's a friend of mine that From one of the churches that I served at previously. And when he was there, my ministry wasn't preaching. I was kind of lower on the totem pole, so to speak. And I was in charge of the hospitality ministry at the church, and they called me a connections pastor. And there was a guy that, a wonderful man, and I met him through the men's ministry there. And one time I, I was telling my wife this the other day that he was talking to some other guys and I overheard him and he was saying about how he and his wife and his little girl that they were at a restaurant. I think it was at Chili's. And he said that there was a young man and a young woman that were sitting directly across from them. And he said that he heard the young man uh, using inappropriate language. And he said he got up and he went over and he sat down at their table directly across from the young man. And he said, you know, if this was my daughter... I wouldn't want you talking to her that way. And I shared with Christine that my friend said that he spent about 15 minutes sitting at the table talking with them and he shared the gospel with them. And at the end of it, this 15, 16-year-old boy and his girlfriend, they thanked him. They said, thank you for coming over and having the boldness to sit down. Would we do that? I was convicted because I was like, I wouldn't do that. I'm a paid minister. I'm a professional. I wouldn't have done that. I would have probably asked my fan. I would have asked the waiter or waitress to let us go and sit somewhere else. Are we offended? My wife Christine was telling me an analogy or a word picture that she used with the youth, the other, maybe it was last week, the week before, and she was sa- asking the, the youth, she put some, stuff up on a board and she said that, you know, which of these three things, when you look at this person's day and this person's day, which one of these looks like an athlete, somebody that's training? Is it the person who wakes up about noon, you know, maybe eats some cake batter out of a a can or is it maybe the person who gets up at 4, 4.30 in the morning and they get up and they eat a healthy breakfast and then they go and they train. And when you think about that, When you think about, as Christians, why is it that people who are involved in the CrossFit games, why is it that people who are Olympic athletes, that everything in their lives revolves around the goal that they're trying to accomplish? What's your goal? Do you wake up every morning and say, I'm going to eat, I'm going to sleep, and I'm going to train? I'm going to know God's word. So when I get into a situation and somebody asks me a question, or do we sit there and we go, huh? We're more like the person who gets up whenever we want, that eats cake batter out of a can. That's that's Pastor Kevin's job. I don't really have to do that. I don't really have to know anything. I know that Jesus saved me. I'm good. Are you eagerly anticipating his return? Are you anticipating Messiah? Or are you just satisfied with personal salvation? I'm just asking. Maybe it's something as simple as on Facebook, or maybe the the cards that you bought for this time of year that you didn't even give it a second thought to buy something that said happy holidays. I handed out Christmas cards this morning and I say Christmas cards because I'm intentional about everything that I do. I don't care if you have happy holidays. I want you to have a wonderful Christmas season because what I'm celebrating, what you should be celebrating is the advent of Messiah. I don't care if you celebrate Kwanzaa or whatever other, maybe it's Festivus. I don't know what it is that other people celebrate and I don't care. Well, pastor, that's a little insensitive. I want people to know that I celebrate the risen Lord, the creator of the universe. And if you're not celebrating him, then you are destined and bound for eternal separation. And I want you to know, and I don't care if you think I'm PC, I want you to be moved from the prison of hell behind those gates of Hades and I want you to be moved from there. I want the deaf to hear. I want the blind to see. I want the lame to walk. I want prisoners to hear the gospel. Do you? Are you afraid you're going to offend someone? Last week, my wife pointed out that there's a Christian singer named Lauren Daigle. She's very popular these days. She's come out with some incredible songs and she's been gifted with an amazing voice. And it seems to me what's really sad about that is that Christian artists, that their goal, instead of glorifying Christ, is that their ultimate goal seems to be, for a lot of them, is crossover. Crossover. I want people that are out there, you know, that that are in the secular world, I want them, you know, so I'll kind of water down the doctrine in my songs. I won't make it overtly Christian, She had an opportunity on the Ellen DeGeneres show, reaching millions and millions of people. When Ellen asked her about homosexuality and what the Bible had to say about it, she said, well, I'm still figuring that out. I tell people, go and read the Bible yourself and figure it out. It's really clear. And we're not saying, see, because Ellen set her up. No matter what you say, you're going to be wrong when you trust in yourself, but if she had stood her ground and said, Ellen, I'll tell you, I don't really have a personal opinion because opinions don't matter in this world. What matters, and whip out your pocket Bible that Vincent gave you from the Gideons International, you say, let me read to you from Romans chapter one. I'm gonna read to you from Romans chapter one. This is God's word. And if you didn't know that was coming, Lauren, then you didn't pray about it. Because God has given you an opportunity to reach people. And instead, she just sat there on the fence. Are you offended? See, because what Jesus said, and anyone who is not offended because of me is blessed. Guess what that means for people who are offended by him? You're not. See, the opposite of a blessing is a curse. The gospel, anticipating Messiah, causes offense to many. See, that's not a license for us to be offensive. Share with my students in my apologetics class, I heard them, I had them memorize 1 Peter 3.15, revere Christ as Lord. And at the end of that verse, it says that we're supposed to do it the way that we do apologetics, that we have our defense, is that we do it with gentleness and respect. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to be offensive to other people. Some of you may be thinking, Pastor, well, that's great, but you forgot verse one. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I told you I'm intentional about what I do. When Jesus had finished giving orders to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. See, Jesus didn't die on a cross to hang out with us in our circumstances, to be our own personal Jesus. He didn't. He didn't die on a cross to enable us in our drama. There's a reason why he's the deliverer. He delivers us from those things, from the muck and the mire and sets our feet upon a rock. Jesus finished giving detailed instructions, giving orders to his 12 disciples and he moved on from there. I want you to look down in chapter 11 of Matthew. Matthew. 11.11, it says, I assure you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been doing what? It's been forcefully advancing. See, it says when Jesus had given his disciples detailed instructions, you know everything that you need to know. Do y'all realize that? You know everything that you need to know. Jesus is Messiah. He died on the cross. Call out to him, ask him for the gift of faith. Love your neighbor as yourself. Consider others as more important than yourself. And if you're not doing that, then you're failing. If you're not taking it to the gates of hell, you're failing. We're failing as a church, it's been forcefully advancing. See, we get to make a choice. You're either going to participate in that advancing kingdom of God or you're not. Anticipating Messiah doesn't mean that you're sitting back on the sofa going, well, Jesus is coming back someday. I'm good. You're good? Because that's what it's all about. It's all about you, right? And then it goes on to say, forcefully advancing and in my translation, which is not a very good rendering, it says, and the violent have been seizing it by force. That word violent would probably be better rendered as those who are passionate, those who are zealous. doesn't say that the violent are seizing it by force. Jesus isn't endorsing people to be violent. He's saying that with that kind of passion that Paul had, that kind of passion that drove him to be a missionary to be relentless, to take the gospel and, Anywhere and everywhere that he went against all opposition. See, the kingdom of God is advancing forcefully and you can either be a part of it or you can miss out. I want you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 6 as we get ready to close here. I read earlier from Another passage here in Mark 6, and I'm going to finish this up. See, it said that John was thrown in prison. Herod would oftentimes go to see him, and he'd be disturbed, but he listened to him gladly. And then in verse 21, it says, Now an opportune time came at his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for the nobles, military commanders and leaders in Galilee. When Herodias, the woman that was his brother's wife, he married, when her daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. So he swore an oath to her. Whatever you ask me, I'll give to you up to half my kingdom. Then she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, mother said. Immediately she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter right now. Though the king was deeply distressed because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. Started off saying, that anticipating Messiah shatters our expectation. Anticipating Messiah requires total surrender. I wonder, because scripture doesn't tell us if John, when Jesus provided that answer, where he landed. Was he disappointed? Did he still question? Or was he content to die there in prison without Jesus breaking him out? without there being a big Hollywood explosion like Arnold Schwarzenegger. So I want to ask you again, how are we doing? Are you zealous for Christ and his mission? Are we taking the ministry of the church seriously and kicking down the gates of hell to ransom captives? Are we truly expecting him? Are we truly anticipating Messiah? How are we doing? Let's pray together.